2 Samuel chapter number 12, looking at verses. We're going to look at the whole chapter, but to start, let's read the first 11 verses. <clears throat> 2 Samuel, did I say 12? Yes. Come on, guys. Don't be that gullible. It's two. <laughs> Appreciate the way you follow my leadership, though. It's a blessing. All right, 2 Samuel 2. We're off to a good start. And it came to pa- pass after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? The Lord said unto him, Go up. And David said, Whither shall I go up? And he said, Unto Hebron. So David went up thither, and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, Nabal's wife, the Carmelite. And his men that were with him did David bring up, every man with his household. And they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David, king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, that the men of Jabesh-Gilead were they that buried Saul. And David sent messengers unto the men of Jabesh-Gilead, and said unto them, Blessed be ye of the Lord, that ye have showed this kindness unto your Lord, even unto Saul, and have buried him. And now the Lord show kindness and truth unto you. And I also will requite you this kindness, because... Ye have done this thing. Therefore now let your hands be strengthened and be ye valiant. For your master Saul is dead. And also the house of Judah have anointed me king over them. But Abner the son of Ner, captain of Saul's host, took Ishbosheth the son of Saul and brought him over to Mahanaim. And made him king over Gilead and over the Asherites and over Jezreel and over Ephraim and over Benjamin and over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel and reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. The title of a message is this, Waiting Makes You Strong. Waiting Makes You Strong. After the period of grief that we studied last week, that David portrayed over Saul and Jonathan's death, after a long period, he wrote a song of of lament. He took time to fast for several days, go through all of those cultural ceremonial type things. Chapter 2 says, and it came to pass after this. So we're in a new time now. And David is going to inquire of the Lord for the next step. By the way, that's always a good idea. He wants to know if God would like him to go back home to Judah. Now, we don't know how long it took, but God eventually gave him some positive confirmation and tells him to head back to Judah and settle in a place called Hebron. So David immediately obeyed and moved his family and and all of his men and their families back to Hebron. Once they arrived... The men of Judah, we don't know how long it took, but eventually they felt it right to anoint David publicly as their king. Now it's important to understand that God has already anointed David as the king of Israel. Back in 1 Samuel 16, God says, this is my man, a man after my own heart. He was a shepherd boy, a teenager back then. Many years have passed. And what these men are doing in Judah is basically publicly signifying their support of God's choice as king. Now, now we know that Judah is just the southern part of Israel. 
So it doesn't mean that David has totally been anointed publicly, at least been anointed king over all Israel yet, but at least the southern part of Israel, he is now officially the king. The narrator includes a, a, a kind of a brief detail in what I read there in chapter two about these men of Jabesh Gilead. The men of Judah that anointed David king wanted to make sure that David understood that, that when King Saul back in first Samuel 31 fell on his own sword, committed suicide and died at the hands of the Philistines, he wanted, here's what happened. Let, let me take a step back. After Saul did that, the, the men of the Philistines took him as kind of a trophy and pinned him to the wall downtown, basically, for everybody to see. Well, these men from Jabesh Gilead, in the middle of the night, snuck into Philistine territory and took Saul down and gave him a proper burial. So, so the men of Judah, for some reason, wanted David to know, hey, these men from the northern part of Israel in Jabesh Gilead, these are good peeps. These are good dudes. They did something right. And so, so David sent messengers to them in the northern part of Israel and, and told these guys, hey, I want you to know I heard what you did for King Saul. And, and now I'm the king of Judah of the southern part of Israel. And, and I want you to know as the king of Judah that, that I'm going to be praying for you. I want God's blessing on you. And I'm going to return your kindness. Now, this was David kind of making a political move, kind of sticking out or, or offering an olive branch, so to speak. Uh, to these men because you know he hasn't earned their loyalty or support yet because they're part of the northern part of Israel. And, and I think the author puts that in there because when, when we get uh, a, a few books later, we're going we're gonna to see how this little act of kindness was actually repaid to David. It's pretty neat how, how it all works out. But it's not the main point of the text whatsoever. I want you to see uh, what, what, what the, the biblical writer is trying to get us to notice about David in these few short verses. He wants us to notice something that David inquired of the Lord first. He didn't rush right to the throne when King Saul died. He didn't take matters into his own hands. He sought the Lord. He asked God what he wanted him to do. And and then he waited on God's answer. Once David received God's answer, David did exactly what God told him to do. And he went exactly where God told him to go. And, And once he got there... Listen, David didn't form a town hall meeting. He didn't put together some political campaign. He didn't call the Hebron daily leader to set up an interview with the future king of Israel. He just settled down and waited. Eventually God moved on the heart of the men of Judah and they approached David and said, can we anoint you to be our king? It wasn't David's idea. He didn't promote himself to the king of Judah, even though he knew in his heart that it was God's plan. He just patiently, silently waited on God to move in the hearts of these men. And it all happened in God's time. Are you getting this? In the meanwhile, as David's waiting on God, there's another man in the northern part of Israel where David's kingship hasn't been established yet. And he's going to do just the opposite of what David did. His name is Abner. We read it. Abner was Saul's cousin. Abner was in charge of all of Israel's army. He was very loyal to Saul. And when he had heard that David had gained the support of Judah in the south, he took matters into his own hands to ensure that David wouldn't be able to earn the support of the north. He wanted it to stay in Saul's family. So he goes and gets Saul's son, Ishbosheth. And he uses Ishbosheth as his puppet king. 
Look at the detail in verse 8 and 9. Watch here. But Abner the son of Ner, captain of Saul's host, watch that next word, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. Look at the first line of verse 9. And made him king over Gilead. Abner took Ishbosheth and made him king. I, I want you to see this. Contrary to David's coronation, there was no public support. There was no anointing. Most importantly, there was no inquiring of the Lord. God had already, and Abner knew this, God had already declared that Saul's dynasty was done. Saul's sons would not reign in his place. God had already chosen a king for himself, and it was David. But Abner didn't care. The narrator seems to be showing us tonight a contrast between these two men, David and Abner. Are you seeing it? Are you seeing it? Talk back to me. David humbled himself. He sought the Lord. He obeyed the Lord. And he let the Lord lift him up. Abner did just the opposite. He he took matters into his own hands. He failed to seek God. He didn't even leave time for the people of Israel to anoint Ishbosheth as their king. He manipulated the situation. He hurried the situation. He took the responsibility of being a kingmaker. Something that didn't work out very good for the nation of Israel the first time around. You could sum up the contrast this way. David waits while Abner takes. Now what the rest of the chapter is going to show us is the result of taking instead of waiting. A civil war breaks out and things get wild. Follow me, please. Verse 12. And Abner, the son of Ner and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met together by the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men now arise and play before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then there arose and went over by number 12 of Benjamin, which pertained to Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. And they caught every one of his fellow by the head and thrust his sword in his fellow's side. So they fell down together. Wherefore, that place was called Helkoth. Hazarim, which is in Gibeon. Do you see what happened? Abner, the military general of Israel, meets up with Joab, the military general of Judah. It seems that this is kind of the first round of negotiations between the north and the south. They decide to let 24 men, 12 from each side, have a hand-to-hand fight. They probably chose 12 because that's how many tribes there were in Israel. That's really what they were fighting over. Who would gain control of both the northern and southern tribes of Israel? Well, we read it. The fight breaks out. And the 24 men kill each other almost simultaneously. I mean, what do you expect from 24 dudes that aren't supposed to like each other? And are put in a ring with knives. They're not going to play checkers. They nicknamed that battleground the Field of Blades. However, the little skirmish didn't resolve anything. It it led to a civil war. Verse 18. Follow this. And there were three sons of Zeruiah. There Joab and Abishai and Asahel. 
Asahel was as light of foot as a wild roe. That means he's really fast. (laughs) And Asahel pursued after Abner. And in going, he turned not to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Art thou Asahel? And he answered, I am. And Abner said to him, Turn thee aside to thy right hand or to thy left, and lay thee hold on one of the young men, and take thee his armor. But Asahel would not turn aside from following of him. And Abner said again to Asahel, Turn thee aside from following me. Wherefore should I smite thee to the ground? How then shall I hold up my face to Joab thy brother? Howbeit he refused to turn aside. Wherefore Abner, with, with the hinder end of the spear, smote him under the fifth rib, that the spear came out behind him. And he fell down there and died in the same place. And it came to pass that as many as came to the place where Asahel fell down and died, stood still. This is wild. This narrator tells us that, that these three sons uh, were all on David's side. They were all David's nephews. Asahel was the fastest one of them all. And when these 24 guys killed each other and Abner started riding away, Asahel's like, I can catch that dude. And so he started pursuing him and Abner looked back and said, you don't want to do this. You're really fast, but what are you going to do when you catch me? I mean, you need to go borrow some armor because you cannot fight with me. And he was right. The dude was an experienced warrior. He was the military general of the north. You don't mess with him. He said, I don't want to kill you. And I don't have to deal with your older brother if I kill you. So stop where you are. And Asahel wouldn't stop. And so Abner came to a complete stop. And armorless Asahel was flying. I don't know if he couldn't stop. I don't know what was going on. But he went so fast into Abner's spear that it went through his entire body. It was a bloody mess. And what happens next is exactly what Abner was afraid of. Asahel's older brother, Joab, who is much, a much more formidable opponent, the military general of the south, started chasing after him. Are you with me here? This has got to be exciting to you. Verse 24. Joab also and Abishai pursued after Abner. And the sun went down when they were come to the hill of Ammon that lieth before Gia by the way of the wilderness of Gibeon. And the children of Benjamin gathered themselves together after Abner and became one troop and stood on the top of an hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Knowest thou not that it will be bitterness in the latter end? How long shall it be then? Ere thou bid the people return from following their brethren. And Joab said, As God liveth, unless thou hast spoken, surely then in the morning the people had gone up every one from following his brother. So Joab blew a trumpet. And all the people stood still and pursued after Israel no more, neither fought they any more. Verse 29, and Abner and his men walked all that night through the plain and passed over Jordan and went through all Bithron and they came to Mahanaim. So Abner gets to high ground and he uses his position to begin to negotiate with Joab. And, and, and what he was saying made sense to Joab, enough for Joab to blow the trumpet and call a ceasefire. Joab called off the dogs. Now, now don't get under the impression that Joab forgave Abner. Next chapter, next Sunday night, we're going to discover that, that Joab is a bitter man. And Abner will pay the price. And we'll talk about that next Sunday night. But what's very telling at this point in the story is that the biblical writer includes the details 
of both armies' roll call once they stop fighting. Look at verse 30. And Joab returned from following Abner. And when he had gathered all the people together, there lacked of David's servants 19 men and Asahel. But the servants of David had smitten of Benjamin and of Abner's men, so that 303 score men died. Remarkably, David's men, David's army only lost 20 men in the battle. Abner's army lost 360 men. And and the writer really sums it up in the first verse of chapter 3. Now there was long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Watch here. But David waxed stronger and stronger. And the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. Here you have David. A man who waits on God and he gets stronger and stronger. And then you have Abner, a man who takes from God and he gets weaker and weaker. In our minds, it seems like it should work just the opposite, doesn't it? If you want to get ahead, if you want to get the position, you want to get the power, you want to get the influence, you want to get the wealth, you want to get the opportunity. Well, you got to take it. You got to take initiative. You got to take charge. You got to take control. You got to take matters into your own hands. If we won't take it, we won't get it. So the world says. We think that that if we wait for power, if we wait for influence, if we wait for opportunity, it will pass us by. We, We think that waiting will ultimately make us weaker. But here's where the paradox of the text and the entire Christian life comes in. It's actually waiting that makes us stronger. And taking that makes us weaker. See, the story we read tonight contrasts two ways of becoming king. David is portrayed as a man who wouldn't even go back to his homeland without divine approval. A man who, once he got there, wouldn't take a single step toward the throne until he was asked to do so. Yet Abner is portrayed as an impatient man, an impulsive man, who took matters into his own hands and attempts to seize power and influence and control himself. In the end, watch here, the man who waits wins. The man who takes loses. The story of David and Abner reminds me of another story in American history, the story of Aaron Burr. You might have read it in 1804. I'm going I'm to oversimplify it a little bit, but Vice President Burr killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel. When he did that, he lost all popularity among the people and basically made it impossible for him to become the president. So he took matters into his own hands. Like Abner, he started to have his own ishbosheths. He used people like puppets to seize power and influence and control. His goal, they say, was to detach the western states and the Louisiana territory from the Union and build his own empire. He wanted to rule it. They weren't going to vote him as president. He was going to take. Despite his efforts, Burr was later tried for treason. Even though he was acquitted, he lived in fear and exile for four years. People hated him. They say when he finally made it back to America, he lived in relative obscurity as an attorney in New York. Something far from what he had in mind 
when he tried to take what didn't belong to him and make it his. He thought that by taking, he would get stronger. But it only made him weaker. Are you with me? So we come to really the thesis statement of the entire text. And it's this waiting, not taking makes you strong. I want you to take that home. That's a good kind of taking. (laughs) Take this home. Waiting, not taking makes you strong. This Old Testament narrative plays out all the time in our lives today. Because we're tempted in, in these various situations of our life to take and not to wait. Can I ask you tonight, who do you most often resemble? Are you the kind of person that resembles David? Who inquires of the Lord, who waits on the Lord's direction and then obeys the Lord? Or do you most resemble Abner who skips the whole prayer thing? You don't have time to slow down. You can't afford to miss an opportunity. You you have your mind made up and you're going to go after what you want, when you want it, how you want it. That's what your teachers told you to do in school anyway. Go get it. Think about it. When it comes to the decisions you make in life, are you a waiter or a taker? When you have a work-related decision, a career-related decision, are you in so much of a hurry that you just take matters into your own hands to get yourself what you want? Or do you really take time to inquire of the Lord and wait for His direction? And By the way, when I say inquire of the Lord, I'm meaning that you actually pray and seek counsel with an open heart. You don't have your mind already made up. You aren't already a fourth of the way in the decision-making process. Then you ask for wisdom and guidance. Before David did anything, he inquired of the Lord. And don't forget where he was at the beginning of chapter 2. He was in Philistine territory. He had been there for 16 months by this time. It wasn't home. He was uncomfortable. Your job may feel like Philistine territory to you. You want to relocate, you want to advance, you want to change careers. But, but even though David was uncomfortable, he was more concerned about God's guidance than his own convenience. The same could be applied to financial decisions, relational decisions, parenting decisions. Waiting is what leads to stronger outcomes. Taking is what leads to weaker outcomes. See, the decisions that, that we as God's children make on a whim, be honest, they usually cause us to wax weaker and weaker. The decisions we make with patience usually cause us to act stronger and stronger. One of the most heartbreaking things as as a pastor sometimes is to watch God's people get in too much of a hurry. Get desperate. Panic. Live by sight and not by faith. And just totally close God's word. And make up their mind. Make rash, quick decisions. And then have to sit back and watch them wax weaker and weaker and weaker. I'm also thinking of parents in here because I am one. I'm learning that parenting is a long game approach, not a short game approach. There's some things as a parent that I'm better off waiting for than taking control over. I'm learning that. 
sometimes the hard way. Shepherding a child's heart takes a lot of time. But when you affect their heart, it lasts a long time. Modifying a child's behavior, on the other hand, just takes a little bit. A little bit of time, but, but the change in behavior only lasts a little time before you have to modify it again. See, I'm tempted constantly to see a weakness in my son's character and immediately take matters into my own hands. My son will not be that way. I'll intimidate and threaten him into good character. I'll discipline him into good character. I'll build walls and boundaries so high in his life that he can't help but have good character, so help me God. And none of those things are bad in and of themselves. But when I start using them as a means of control instead of guidance, I've taken my son's life and character in my own hands. Instead of patiently and lovingly and prayerfully letting God change his heart. Listen, that doesn't mean I stop disciplining. Doesn't mean I stop placing boundaries in my son's life. And neither should you. It means that as I'm doing that, I'm praying with him regularly. I'm spending time with him regularly. I'm having composed regular conversations with him in hopes that my patient love and and influence over a long period of time will be used by God to affect his behavior more than my rules ever could. See, there are parents that wait and there are parents that take. Parents that wait, let God use them over the long course of time in their children's life. They usually have kids that wax stronger and stronger. Parents that are obsessively trying to take control of their kids' lives usually have kids that later down the road wax weaker and weaker and weaker. See, we could say the same thing about influence and the behavior of our spouse. If something about them frustrates us and something about our spouse is frustrating our marriage, do you know there's actually a right way to go about influencing change? And a wrong way to go about it. God, I'm convinced that God wants to use every spouse as a sanctifying tool in his hand to mold and grow their partner. But that doesn't mean we take God's tool and beat our spouse upside the head with it. Sometimes we can become so desperate for improvement in our, mar- in our marriages and, and honestly so exasperated with our spouse's deficiencies in marriage that we stop waiting on God to change their heart and we become God in their life. Is anybody listening? I asked Jenny if I could use her as an illustration tonight because she aced this test this last week. We don't always get it right, do we? This time she got it right. Apparently I had been a bad husband for a few weeks. Hard to believe. (laughs) I love those of you who really know me. You just start kind of laughing under your breath. Like soccer. But I just, I'd grown a little bit distant, distracted. uh, Misprioritized. Some things, and it wasn't a one, it's just a pattern. And, and so, my wife, knowing my personality makeup, knowing my, my tendency to get defensive, um, which is never an excuse, but, but she knows me and my propensities. And so, I was, I was doing a lead class at the college on Thursday, and I get this text message from her mid morning and, and just, just sharing her heart with me. And she said, Hey, I just wanted to, sh- I wanted to, 
articulate this out in the text because I didn't want to put you on the spot when you came home. I didn't want to throw all this on you. I wanted to give you time to process this, but I've been really praying about how to talk to you about this. And, and boom, she lays it out and tells me how big of a jerk I am and those kind of things in the Jenny way. And, and, and it was just perfectly articulated. And, and it humbled me. It didn't make me get defensive. It humbled me that she actually thought through what is the best way my husband is going to receive this. It meant the world to me. She, was, she, she showed prudence. She said, okay, I know Tyler. I've tried it this way before. I've tried, not literally, but metaphorically hitting him upside the head with a hammer. Let's, let's try this approach. I got that text and I said, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Let's talk about it when I get home. I had a couple hours to process it. Drove home and we just instantly sat on the couch and composed, just composed as all get out, both of us. The talk was amazing. An hour long talk, not a lot of arguing. I wasn't playing defense attorney, asking questions of each other. And, and it's just amazing to me. And again, we don't always get it right. We're not the hero of our own story. We get it wrong more than we get it right, I feel like, a lot of times. But this is what really helped me, is that she just, she could have took control. I'm going to take his behavior and I'm going to change it. And I will not settle for a husband that doesn't make me number one. And it's my right to tell him, after all, he married me. But she didn't. She was thoughtful enough. To just be used as a tool in God's hand. So I'm just going to wait on God for the right time and the right words. Are you with me tonight? I know it's hard to believe we can get that practical from an Old Testament narrative, but there it is. In our marriages, when you try to take matters into your own hands, you make matters worse. I think of those tonight that might be in financial debt. Maybe it's because of things that are totally outside of your control. And that happens. Maybe for some it's because of things you created for yourself. And that happens. Either way, during a financial crisis, isn't it not true that we naturally get in kind of an emergency posture of taking and not waiting? There's no time to wait. There's bills to pay. We've got to figure this thing out. We've got to put food on the table. We don't inquire of the Lord. We don't wait on the Lord. We just begin to move the chess pieces as we see fit. We're going to fix this thing ourselves. So, so we take an extra job that pulls us out of church. Over time leaves us spiritually anemic. We, we take extended time away from our spouse and our, our kids. We take the tithe and offerings that belong to God and use them to pay off our debt. And we're thinking the whole time that by taking, we're making ourselves financially strong. But last time I checked, taking time out of church and taking time away from family and taking money that belongs to God will only cause you and your house to wax weaker and weaker. Instead, be in a posture of waiting. That doesn't mean do nothing. That means pray. Ask God to provide for you. Inquire of God as to when and where and how to attack your debt without taking from other more important areas of your life. Continue to seek first his kingdom, then wait with faith as he fulfills the promise to add all these things unto you. 
I could go on, but you get the point tonight. Waiting, not taking makes you strong. May I ask you, in what areas of your life right now are you most tempted to take matters into your own hands instead of waiting on God for guidance and provision? Maybe I could ask it this way. In what area of your life has your action outran your prayer? Have you gotten ahead of God on some things? Taken some things into your own hands? God, give us the heart of David that seeks him. Doesn't take from him. I want to close with three scripture passages tonight. Isaiah 40, 31. They confirm this is true. But they that wait upon the Lord shall get weaker and weaker. No, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. But I would like to have that kind of strength. They shall walk and not faint. Psalms 27, 14. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall weaken thy heart. He shall strengthen thy heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And then a song we sang this morning in church based out of Psalm 62. We're going to sing it again tonight. My soul, wait thou only upon God. For my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. And God is my salvation. And my glory, the rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge. God is a rock. God is a shelter. God is a tower. God is a really, really strong God for us. Selah. I didn't put that on there and I don't know why, but that's how that portion of the text ends. Selah. What does that mean? Wait. Pause. Don't even go on. Don't even sing the next lyric until you think about that those who wait on the Lord become stronger. Those who take become weaker. So trust in God and wait on him. Do you agree with the Bible tonight? Say amen. amen. Stand to your feet every head.